And for our study this afternoon, for reflection, we turn back to Hebrews chapter 10. The writer had been encouraging his readers to recall the early days of their conversion, recall what they went through for the Lord. And picking up with that thought, he says, beginning in verse 35, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So we're looking this afternoon, beginning with the second area of motivation, the second motivating suggestion that the writer presents to his readers, enabling them to persevere, to press on in their confidence in Christ. And he suggests here, secondly, and we by extension can learn from that, and the lesson is this, that we can be motivated to persevere for Christ in the face of trials and sufferings by cherishing the prospect of future reward. We're going to be able to Endure. We're going to be motivated to endure, to press on in our walk with the Lord by cherishing the prospect of future reward. Here's what he says, verses 35 and 36. In fact, we'll look at, beginning with verse 35, he says, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. And that word, therefore harks back to all that these Jewish believers would have recalled of the struggles, of the sufferings they had endured for their faith in Christ. So that on the basis of their past perseverance in the faith, the writer is in effect saying to them, you cannot at this stage now cast away your faith in Christ. You can't at this point cast away your confidence to do that would be to forfeit a great reward. He's saying to them, you cannot at this point throw it all away. Not with all that you have been through and how the Lord has seen you through. He says you need to hold on to that confidence in Christ. And you need to hold on to that determined boldness you exhibited in facing those early days of suffering because such confidence will be greatly Rewarded And given the prospect of such reward, verse 36, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And that word endurance is worth looking at. The word in the original literally means to stay under. And the idea is that of doggedness in suffering. It is that of perseverance under pressure. It is the, the idea there is staying under pressure and not quitting despite the temptation to do so. The idea is that of hanging in there despite the temptation to quit. 
In effect, the call here is to remain faithful to the Lord regardless of the bitter circumstances one might be going through. And such faithful perseverance, the author suggests, is the will of God and is most crucial if at all they are to reap a blessing from the Lord. Now, once again, keep in mind, as we said last week, that for the author of Hebrews, retreating from Christ is not a legitimate option. It's not an option. Remember, keep in mind what he's saying. If you turn away from Christ, you know the truth about Christ, the person work of Christ. You do that. To do that is to sin deliberately and willfully. And that is disastrous in its consequences. So notwithstanding their sufferings, the need of these Christians, the need of these Christians was not evasion of Christ through cowardice, but endurance for Christ by way of continued confidence in him. That's what he's saying. He says you have need of endurance. Not escape through cowardice, but what you really need is that ability to stay in the situation, to stay under pressure, regardless of how bitter it might be. Beloved, whenever you and I are inclined to jealousy in our faith in God, we only have to stop and consider some of the many promises, rich promises of God for faithful endurance. For example, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Paul writes there, the saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And here's the part we need to get. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Denial of Christ, retreating from Christ, is not a legitimate option. Persecution for the writer of the Hebrews is not a mitigating factor when it comes to denying Christ. As we move on, we come in the third place. Suggested by the author of Hebrews is that we can be motivated to persevere in the faith by considering the reality of a coming Savior, by considering the reality of a coming Savior. So not only cherishing the prospect of future reward, but considering the reality of a coming Savior. Verses 37 through 39. In verse 37, we have an implicit reference to the return of the Lord Jesus. We read, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. What a promise. And when we stop to think of it, there's no truth that will more readily set our hearts ablaze with energy and fervency for the Lord than the truth that Christ is coming again. And the truth that he could come back at any moment. And that will enhance our ability to endure the rigors of pressure, the pressures of this life, life as we know it in this broken and fallen world. The truth of the Lord's coming and all the glorious realities that come with it is what is designed to stir hearts, to motivate us to press on for the Lord. Now, the writer tells us a few things here about this coming of the Lord. First of all, we have the imminence of his coming, the imminence of his coming, meaning that he could return at any moment. The writer says there in verse 37a, note the phrase, he says, yet a little while and many people reading that will say, well, how is it that over 2,000 years, since 2,000 years we've been talking about the Lord Jesus coming back, his coming back is near, yet a little while he's coming back, and yet, where is he? The skeptics will ask. 
And we only have to remind ourselves from time to time what the Word of God teaches. Second Peter chapter 3 um, teaches that for one, he says, a thousand years is a day, and a day with the Lord is as a thousand years. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. What we have to remember there is that God does not reckon on time as we do. God, in fact, does not live in time as you and I do. So when he says here, yet a little while, we have to understand and we have to take a face value. What the word of God is actually saying here is that his coming is imminent. It could happen at any moment. For yet a little while, and he who will come will come and will not tarry. The language here, the words a little while, yet a little while, the language is drawn from Isaiah chapter 26 verse 20. It is drawn also from Haggai chapter 2 verse 6, both of which verses relate to God's promise to visit his people with deliverance, notwithstanding the afflictions they were experiencing at the hand of their oppressors. You remember Habakkuk in the book of Habakkuk, he had this problem where he went before God and he was inquiring of God, why is it that the wicked are prospering? And his own nation was being afflicted by the Chaldeans. And in that context, God assured the prophet, he says, yet a little while, he says, though the vision tarry, wait for it, it will come and it will not delay. Well, the writer of the Hebrews here is seizing on these two passages, Isaiah chapter 26, verse 20, Haggai chapter 2, verse 6, and he's relating that to the Lord's coming, and he's relating it to the believers there in mentioned in the book of Hebrews, who are going through persecution, and the writer is saying to them, look, Christ is coming, and in a little while it will all be over. To a people enduring the rigors of living for the Lord in this opposing, persecuting world, the assurance that Christ is coming, that his coming is near, that his coming could occur at any moment is certainly most comforting. To these Jewish believers, some of them who were on the verge of turning away from Christ, this reminder of the Lord's soon return would have been a tonic to them, a fortifying nourishment for their souls, even as it should be for us. Christ is coming again for yet a little while, and he who will come will come. Do we believe that? Do we have that uppermost in our minds, in our thinking? This is what is going to sustain us amidst the pressures of this life. But we have not only the imminence of his coming, but secondly, the certainty of his coming, because the writer says here, the B part of verse 7, 37, he will come and will not delay. He will come and will not delay. He actually restates the negative of what he stated at first. The positive is he will come. Negative, he will not delay. So we are being emphatic. To underscore the certainty of his coming. And beloved, as sure as the promise of his first coming was fulfilled, so is the promise of his second coming a matter of sure fulfillment. And though the ungodly may scoff at the idea of Christ's coming and his imminent coming, the fact that he's certainly coming, that in no way diminishes nor nullify its certainty. Jesus is coming again. In fact, Jesus built the case for his coming on his own integrity. He says, 
I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. In fact, he prefaced that statement by saying, if it were not so, I would have told you. He will come and will not delay the assuring affirmation of the word of God. And yes, especially in seasons of suffering and of opposition for the sake of Christ, it may appear as though Christ is delaying his return, but he is in fact not delaying. Second Peter chapter 3 verse 9 tells us the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slackness. Peter says, actually, what is happening there? God, while we look at it and we say, how long is he going to take to come? He's in fact long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. He's giving people an opportunity to repent and turn to him. The truth is, he's working off the time that his father has fixed by his own authority. Acts chapter 1 verse 7. Remember when his disciples asked him, when will your Lord at this time restore the kingdom? He says, it's not for you to know time or seasons that the father has put in his authority. Praise God, once that divinely planned time has come to fruition, Christ will come at once. And that, you see, is a stimulus to Christian endurance. It is the prospect that Jesus is coming. His coming is imminent. It could happen at any moment, and it is indeed certain. Now, here's my final point this afternoon. We can be motivated to press on for the Lord, to persevere, not only by cherishing the prospect of future reward, and not only by the prospect of our coming Lord, but by critiquing our relationship with the Lord. By critiquing our relationship with the Lord. What do I mean by that? Well, we need to ask ourselves the question, what is the fundamental requirement for relationship and walk with the Lord. What is the fundamental requirement of or for a relationship and walk with the Lord? And God himself, the Lord himself, sets the agenda in this regard. Notice what he says there in verse 38a. He says this, But my righteous ones, my righteous ones shall live by faith. That's the term God sets. The fundamental requirement for a relationship with God, for a walk with God, is faith in God. The very thing that the writer has been impressing on his readers that they need if ever they're going to persevere, if ever they're going to maintain their confidence. Taken from Habakkuk 2, this statement also appears in Romans chapter 1 verse 17. It appears in Galatians 3 verse 11. God's righteous one, who is God's righteous one? God's righteous one is that person who has been declared as such, not on the basis of their good works, but by the grace of God. Through faith in Christ as Savior, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, as any man should boast. We come into a right standing with God through faith in Christ, not through our attempting to be righteous, to be good. 
And after following such exercise of saving faith, one is obliged to work out that saving faith in his or her daily life. So when God says here in his word, my righteous one shall live by faith, it is faith considered in terms of that initial step whereby we come into a right relationship with God and that ongoing process, that ongoing activity of continually looking to Christ that identifies us as God's righteous one. So it is not only the faith of salvation, it's the faith of sanctification. This is how one holds fast the confession of their hope to which Hebrews 10, 23 refers. And in a nutshell, the point of verse 38 is this, that the believer in Christ, when God says there, but my righteous one shall live by faith, the point of this is that the believer in Christ, identified as his righteous one, is that individual whose way of life is characteristically defined by faith, that is, by trust, by confidence in God. And this explains why throughout the epistle, the writer has been stressing the need for continued belief, for continued trust and confidence in the Lord as an expression of true saving faith. We can only go back to the early chapters of the book of Hebrews and notice again and again is stressing the importance of faith as the identifying feature of the people of God. That is why he's cautioning them, he cautioned them regarding the sin of unbelief in chapter 3, verse 6. Remember what he said there when we were in chapter 3? He says this, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So if we're not looking to Christ, if our lives are not characterized by this continual trusting in Christ, by this constant looking to Christ, then we do not qualify our lives in a sense, in a real sense, disqualify us from saying that we are God's people. My righteous one shall live by faith, is what God says. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence to the end. Calling attention to Israel in the wilderness, he, the writer of the Hebrews, states in Hebrews 3, 18 and 19, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient, so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. He reminds them, his readers in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not profit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12, he expresses the desire that they might not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Hebrews 10.22 is called to them is to let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. All these verses, all these verses highlight the critical importance of faith and trust in God as the identifying characteristic feature of those who are truly saved. 
of those who are the Lord's righteous ones. So that one of the ways we can be motivated, here's how we bring this into the point we are making. One of the ways you and I can be motivated to persevere in the faith to assess we, is to assess where we are in relation to this matter of confiding and trusting in the Lord. Here's a question we must ask ourselves. In what is our confidence anchored? Is it in our good works? Is it in our trying to be good? Or is it anchored in Christ? Yes, we came to Christ by faith, but what is our life like now? Are we continuing to look to Christ by faith? Are we holding firm or confidence to the end? Faith and trust in God, even in the midst of the bitterest opposition for the testimony of Christ, is what is required of us, the writer is saying. He's suggesting that faith, saving faith in Christ, and that continual Looking to Christ in faith is the single most essential requirement of those who bear the name of Christ. And we want to persevere when we consider the fact that the ones whom the Lord claims as his righteous ones are those whose lives are characterized by faith. This must be one of our considerations if we, to, if we are to maintain confidence in Christ and not retreat from our confession of him. In critiquing our relationship with the Lord, we should in the second place take caution with regard to what God is saying regarding the one who fails to continue in the faith. That is very important. What does God think of the ones who are not continuing in faith, the ones who have cast off faith in him, their allegiance to him, they are no longer looking to him, what we would call apostates. What does God think of such? He identifies, notice the B part of verse 38, he identifies such as those who shrink back, the one who shrinks back. The word carries the idea of this attitude of timidity or hesitancy. It suggests that one is halting between reliance on Christ and repudiation of him, not taking a decisive stand on either. Regarding those who are of this hesitating, indecisive stance toward continuing trust in Christ, the Lord categorically declares, here's what God says, my soul has no pleasure in him. And that, my friends, what is that? That's the language of denial. That's the language of displeasure. That's the language of disapproval. And that's the language of ultimate disavowal. God is declaring here, as it were, I have no time, no interest for such people. My wrath will abide on such people the one who is drawing back from me, the one who is not anchoring his faith in me, who is looking away from me, who is walking away from me, who ultimately walks away from me, my soul has no pleasure in him. 
My wrath will abide on such people. And so we hear the conclusion of the writer in verse 39. Look at the logical flow of his thought. He says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Listen, this is not at odds with the doctrine of eternal security. It's not. The word of God teaches that once we come into true saving faith with Christ, once we place faith and trust in Christ in a genuine fashion, repenting of sins, here's the point. The nature of that faith, the nature of true saving faith is that it will continue to look to Christ. Failure to look to Christ means that one was never truly saved to begin with. If one walks away from what one knows of the person and work of Christ, if one departs from Christ, if one goes back into the world decidedly, renounces Christ, then God says, such is an apostate. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve the soul. His point, failure to preserve, persevere in faith, marks those who are not saved. Continued faith in Christ, he's saying, leads to the salvation of the soul. I'm not making that up. You could write beside Hebrews 10 verse 38, then John 3 verses 18 and 36, because here's what our Lord Jesus himself says there. He says this, whoever believes in him, and by the way, the verbs here would be present continuous tense. So it's not just a matter of historically believing on Christ. It's a continual state of affairs. We could say whoever is believing, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Whoever believes in the Son of God has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. On him. That's a clear teaching of the Word of God. And that's what the writer is warning his readers about. And he says, Look, there's a better path. Go back and remember, go back and recall what your life was like when you came to the Lord. Look at the evidences of grace in your life. Look at how the Lord brought you through those trials. You stood for him. He's saying then, Go on that same principle and continue to trust the Lord. Don't throw away your confidence. It has great recompense of reward. Christ is coming. In a little while, he's coming. And he's saying to them, ensure that you are one of his. Because one of the distinguishing features of God's people, those whom God claims as his righteous ones, Bear the mark of continued faith in him. And so we see then as we close that with the call to faith in Christ comes the caution, the warning against regressing from faith in Christ. So let's close with this thought this afternoon. From all that we have said today from this passage. And the thought is this, that if endurance is what we need in holding to our confession in Christ, then we can trust the Lord for this particular grace of endurance. 
Indeed, Colossians 1.11 teaches that he strengthens us, that is, God strengthens us with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience. And ironically, one of the ways he supplies us with endurance is by means of the very sufferings we're going through. As Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that sufferings produce endurance. God supplies the endurance we need to live for him. And that capacity for endurance comes out of the very sufferings you and I face. It's a wonderful thing to be saved. It's a wonderful thing to be equipped with these truths concerning how we can persevere in the faith. And if we don't remember anything else, let me say this as a sort of balance to all that we have said. At the end of the day, beloved, it is not so much our persevering as God who is persevering with us. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, work out your own salvation, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and do of his good pleasure. May God Bless these truths to our hearts for his name's sake. Amen.